לא נשכח תמיד להיות מאוחדים, עם ישראל חי. בעליות וירידות גם בשעות הכי קשות. Alright everybody, שלום ובוקר לכם לישי פליישר שואו, ברודקאסטינג לייב. From Judea to the world, you're a part of it wherever you are. Shalom and welcome to Malka Fleischer. Malka, welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's good to be back on the Yishai Fleischer Israel podcast. Todah Rabah. God bless you, Malka. Yes, and you. And I want to say that today's show is actually dedicated. That's right. Uh, a little bit late, but better late than never. It's dedicated to the 15th yurt site of Avraham ben Meir HaKohen, whose yurt site was a few weeks ago. It's uh, my good friend uh, Amy's grandfather, Amy oh. and uh, Arthur, uh, out in, uh, out in uh, Arizona. And he was a patriarch of the family. He was an officer in the U.S. Navy. He was a lawyer, a businessman, and a proud Jew. He was a Baal Tzedakah, which means he gave charity anonymously. And supported, supporting many causes for many years. He provided for education for his family and many who were not in his family. That's very nice. Including non-Jews, Gentiles. Wow. Uh, Goyim, the nations. He supported uh, many institutions, Jewish institutions in his life. Father to three daughters, seven grandchildren, and now has six great-grandchildren. Wow. So I'm Israel Chai, and thank you very much to the memory of Avraham ben Meir HaKohen. Very and that's nice. what the show is dedicated to today. Amen. Um, and... Patriarch, builds family, yeah. right? There are right now uh, four couples in Israel who have been targets of sanctions by the United States because of a uh, presidential order specifically targeting uh, these families. And uh, because, the, the because they're President being President Biden created, uh, declared a national emergency. He called it a national emergency. I looked it up. It was, the United States had a national emergency to sanction these four people. Right. And then be, after that, the UK, the poodle, uh, the poodles at UK followed that. And what then the French. They're just following, you know. I thought um, the French people are poodles. It uh, could be. It could be that they're those terriers or whatever they're called. But the, the bottom line is that is that the behavior is that of a poodle following, you know, America sanctioning, now Britain sanctioning, now France is sanctioning. And, and, and France was big. They're like, 21 people cannot enter our land. Incidentally, and I don't know. I haven't looked at the, lo- the list of Paris, the 21 right? people. Yeah. But I did look at the list of the four people. I promptly forgot the names of those four people because they are like so anonymous. Right. They're like, you've never heard of them. I never heard of them. I've been involved in activism in Israel now for over 20 years. I've never heard the names, not one time of these people. Never seen them, never seen an action that they did. Usually when a country sanctions and like freezes the assets of a known dangerous person, that person is like involved in some, they, they don't want them to be able to move money around because when they move money around, like horrible things happen in the world. I never heard of these guys. In fact, Israel, to my shame, got involved in the, uh, in the uh, freezing of these bank accounts game. And one of the guys, so one of, I know two of the banks, one of them is called Bank Lumi. It's one of the banks here in Israel. It's even international a little bit. And one of them is Bank Hador. You guys don't know about Bank Hador, but basically what it is, is that in Israel, you can open up like a little checking account at your post office and you can use it to pay your bills. You can pay bills from there. You can receive money into there. It's, a, it's the simplest bank account you can think of. 
And this guy's like bank hador, his post office bank account, because that's the only bank account he has is is frozen up. These guys, my guess is that they've never been on an airplane in their lives. They are not leaders of something. I, I just, they do not have followers. I just think that they people don't might not like, understand what you're saying. Okay. What you're saying, I just yeah. want to clarify it for people. Yeah. What you're saying is that these these folks are really not known criminals in any way. And they're not I've never famous. heard of them. Right. And, so and the, you've never heard of them. Right. Uh, and I heard of one. He happens to work for a related organization right. to, to Hebron. But but the, the, the accusations, just to make it clear, is that uh, they are been violent to Palestinians. That's the accusation. Now, I have- Incidentally, I, if that's true, by the way- then we have a whole court system here, right? So, in Israel, so, so that can deal with that. That's right. So let me make let me tell you three wrong things with this this executive order. All right. One, it is an abrogation of Israeli sovereignty because a sovereign. Let's say let's say America has a problem with some of our citizens. They say, "Okay, Israel, can you please look into right. as a, as, a, as an ally and a sovereign? We're asking you to do have your sovereign uh, sovereignty, sovereign police powers." Uh, and and ju- right, do justice, uh, do justice, there. right? So yeah. that's so it's an abrogation of Israeli sovereignty. Two, it's an abrogation of um, um, uh, of due process because these people don't even have any court cases open against them in so the country like, in which uh, they live. Right. It's like and and in other countries there is no court case. You have taken summary judgment on them. What what is the what is the proof? Where is the where is the court? What what is the what, what you're decreeing that 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 you're punishing people now? There's no there's no due process. It's like where's the due process? You know, and punishing them how? Yeah, like that they can't buy milk. Right, they can't. Like, buy milk. what is it that that you're right. getting them to not do? Right, you want to, you want them to go to jail? Okay, show the proof. But what is this business? And number three is is this an equal application of the law? Like, if these guys are if these guys supposedly. Are, uh, are 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 violent threats to right like, local Arabs? I can give you endless a, a list of of, 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 of twenty five hundred people right now. We could give you a list who, who, of who people who should be sanctioned by the United States. Create violence, and they're and they're usually jihadists and Arabs, right? People with court cases. So it's like it's like it's like it's like it's so obvious what this is. It's a bullying. It's a bullying tactic. Uh, sadly, some Israeli banks complied. Usually, I don't know what the story with Bancador is with the with the male one, but usually it's um, what happened with Lumi is that Lumi has got American bank accounts, and according to the executive order, anybody doing business with this is going to get uh, sanctioned, which right, means so that their, their accounts are going to be uh, frozen. Right. But 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 um, now they're saying that the municipalities that support these people, like the southern South Hebron Hills. Yeah are also going to be open to sanctions because they also deal with these people. But I, from the get-go, the minute I heard this, I mean, I said to them, you mean the state of Israel, which provides them with health care and other things? So now the state of Israel has to be sanctioned in toto right, because, because you picked these four people. It was like may or may not have done something that may or may not be Not may or may not. They are innocent till proven guilty. And the, the state that they reside in, an ally, has not issued any court cases against them. So this is an absurdity. It's another one of these things. Like, look, this guy. I'm I think sorry. America it, just wants to show that it can. Do not say America. Do not. This is this is a, a a crusade of a of a particular administration, a particular set of people. And uh, today, uh, earlier, I interviewed a, a Moroccan Arab 
pro-Israel Moroccan Arab, and he's like, Moroccan Moroccan. And he said to me, the the uh, the great danger today, and what I know, is the alliance between progressives and the jihadists. Mm-hmm. That's that's the greatest danger, and that's what we're having here. That's exactly the moment that we're having here. Maka, we have a great show lined up today, but before we kind of get into that. Uh, I do want to say that uh, we have another dedication today, and that's for the people that have fallen uh, in the last uh, in the last few days, uh, including a young lady named right. Omer right. Sarah. S- Staff Sergeant Omer Sarah Benjo, just 20 years old, yeah. um, of the 91st Division, 869th Combat Intelligence Collection Unit. Um, there were rockets fired from Hezbollah onto an Israeli army base right. today. And from the reports, like from the little like winks they're giving you, you can get a lot of information. And what they said is that medics scanned buildings that had been hit by rocket fire. Buildings, plural. And the body of a woman was discovered. And this this was she. Um, Staff Sergeant Omer Sarah Benjo. So, so, so there was like a major attack right. on an Israeli army base in the north, and you know, you buildings know were destroyed. You know what they call that? They call that war, right? And you know what the response? Right. So that's is? what Itamar Ben Gvir said today. So do you know what the proper response yeah. is for these kind of attacks? War, right. and 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 I, I feel sadness that she was killed, right? But I feel okay to express rage. Oh yeah. War rage, and that's the thing. The thing is, like we have, we have been too cooled off. We just, we're just not good at expressing proper rage. Listen, I got to tell you, our fighters are fighting so hard, and I just heard some heartbreaking stories today uh, from my friend. Uh, t- told me, Oren told me about uh, some of his buddies that were just killed down in Gaza. Three. Uh, he knew all the three guys that were killed from one unit uh, uh, yesterday, mm. uh, and uh, and you look up the heavens and you're like, God Almighty! What did he say? He said that they were the best guys, and he said one guy who was, without a question, a tzaddik, a righteous mm. Torah Jew of a rabbinic level, yes. he said that a uh, a bomb blew up right next to him. Everybody else, the other two guys that were killed were badly, badly cut up and broken and all kinds of stuff like that. He, they didn't find a scratch on him. His... he. He's dead. His soul just like left. His soul left. The body just did not get a scratch on it, although the bomb exploded right next to him. But his soul just left, Terrible. and uh, and he said this was the righteous guy. So <clears throat> there's a lot of intensity out there. We are definitely in battle, and I want to I want to give koach strength to everybody out there, Jew and Gentile, to pray, pray strong for the strength of Israel. Hashem oz lamoiten. Right now, don't worry about Hashem Yivrech Shalom. That's for a little bit later. May first God give the Jewish people strength, and later on we'll get the peace. But right now, we need to we need to fight. We need to push these people back. We need to use, to use this opportunity. And as I said in every show these days, which is like, don't let these people die in vain. Use this moment to harness that horribleness and say, right. we will... We will protect our next generation. Right. It's definitely true that you have, a, you have such an amount of suffering let's just be honest so many so many widows so many orphans so many parents who will never get to hug their child again and at least let us give them the gift right of saying my son died and and i'm my arms ache for him but i know that because of him we live in a safe israel that's right it cannot be that after all this 
and all the children whose fathers will not be at their at their weddings and at their bar mitzvahs and at their birthday parties and all the women who have to start over and raise their kids and try to find a you know a, a person to share their life with again after all this stuff it cannot be that after all this what we're gonna do is look at them and go listen we had to make uh you know, painful concessions, you know, for, for peace so that for the next three or four years we can have quiet-ishness. Right. That is not enough. We cannot say that to them. Maka, uh, we just unloaded on our uh, beloved friends and listeners some hardness. Yeah. Uh, now it's time to uh, shift gears a little bit and to give people strength uh, that comes through this war as well. There's a lot of light and a lot of strength that's coming. And I did an interview earlier today with a man uh, whose mission is to bring beef jerky to the that soldiers. That is a righteous mission. It is. It is. It's a great interview. Take Interesting. a listen. The help of God, you know, we're fighting a war here in Israel, and everybody wants a part of it. You know, out in America and other places, people are sending in stuff. Uh, here in Israel, people are volunteering on so many different levels. People are just looking inside and asking themselves, how can I be part of it? How can I take just a small role to help the soldiers, uh, the people that the, the people that have been injured, families of the abductees, um, in my community, uh, there is a family that took it upon themselves to make a cafe uh, that runs in town just free for a few hours uh, every day for wives of of uh, soldiers that are in the army right now. People are doing beautiful things. Chaim Rutenberg has taken upon himself to make beef jerky to beef up our boys and girls our soldiers, and uh, he reached out to me, and I'm like, this is a cool story. Chaim, thank you very much for what you're doing, but explain to me what you're doing. What is it about beef jerky that's so important? What are you doing? Who are you giving it out to? And what's the story? Amazing. First of all, you're the soundtrack of our Aliyah. Ten years ago, it was you in Ben Gurion Airport, live production. I, my family's on there, your little video clip from that day. And so, so thank you, and it's an honor to, to be part of our country, and you're the spokesperson and the voice for that. And Chaim, I see that you are with a beautiful background. I asked you before the show if you're in Key West, but you told me that you are in beautiful Beit Shemesh. Looks great there. You're wearing it. It's not, it's not cold. You look like you're, you're, uh, the sun is setting right now. It's gorgeous out there. This is Eretz Israel. This is our land. There's so much. Uh, Maisa Maraglam goes around, and Baruch Hashem, we're able to, to be part of this wonderful world that we're in. And so to answer your question, uh, from the beginning of the war, like so many people, we were just looking for something to do. I'm a software engineer. My wife's in finance. Just looking for something to do, you know, doing, helping the Hever Kedisha when we could and help the volunteer system at Adasa Hospital. And then my nephew was by us right here on this street in Beit Shemesh. He, with his wonderful wife, he ran up north like so many others that morning. They ran everywhere in the country. And a week later, he was hungry. And my son, he has a special diet. When we go to uh, away for the summers, he takes beef jerky with him because it's a stable food. It's nutritious. There's no additives. It's just pure food. And it's a meal in a bag that you could take anywhere at any time and have it with you. So my wife says, we got to do beef jerky. We couldn't find it in the store. I reached out to a few vendors. And within a day, had around 150 packages. They took them up north, met with the Rasap in the at the northern border, and actually the the, the the army uh, captain guy who's in charge of uh, procurement and stuff for the right. army. Right. Thank you. So we took them up there with some jackets that he wanted, 
And they said, the jackets aren't good, but the beef jerky's perfect. So we took the end of taking the jackets to the Picuzza phone, which was unfortunately targeted today. Northern Command. Thank you, sir. And, <laughs> Chaim, uh, you've become too Israeli. You're, you're, you're speaking, you're speaking English. Right. Don't, don't mess with my Hebrew. No one understands a word of it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you went up to the north. So, so we could a phone, and underneath these jackets, there was a package of beef jerky, about 30 packages. I gave one to this guy, Kobe Tsafati, the head of logistics up there. He's like the mama bear of the whole, all the units in the north. He loved it. He gave some to try to senior commanders. And with, by the time I got back to Beit Shemesh, they went into the field and they got me back. And Kobe said, we want thousands. This is the one food we don't have. And put every last minute, every effort in. I just want to say that I like salad and I like potatoes and chicken. But beef makes me feel stronger and better. And I'm just that kind of guy. And I think there's, there's a lot of guys like me. And when you're out there, you are depleting your proteins. A, a meat snack, that just sounds awesome, especially if it's like, you know, not full of preservatives and stuff. It's just good stuff. It's great. I've had this argument a few times with people. I say, value over cost. Like, what about chicken jerky? What about this? What about that? Like, what, what is a steak in a bag that's shelf-stable in a tank in Gaza in the middle of a war worth? Totally. And it's just, and it, thank God it's, Thank God we've done so much around 50,000 pounds. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So 50,000 uh, beef jerky bags, wait a minute. You're producing it? I don't understand. Just give me, give me, the, give me the- Sourcing it. Sourcing, sourcing it, it from vendors, making it feasible, doing whatever it takes. Um, is it made in Israel or is it made in America? It's, it's mostly made in Israel. Sometimes we get donations. We got fish jerky from, from uh, Kosher Catch in, in Massachusetts. Okay. Uh, but mostly it's grow locally sourced. There's actually a, a facility in Jerusalem that has this uh, Rodabriut, and God gave us Eda Charedis. Oh, so top that's what I was going to ask you also. So it's it's a top extra, it's a it's top kosher, a high standard. It's it's mehadrin, what we call. Uh huh. And it's just been an amazing experience seeing the Yad Hashem every minute, literally. Hand of God. Yeah. Hand of God. Thank you. And. And literally, like the Lubavitcher Rebbe says that at this period of time, you know we're in the final steps. We know we're in the final days, our final opportunities to do good before it just becomes too easy to do good. And in this process, sometimes it's been too easy and sometimes it's been really hard. And always seen that magic. Like even today, someone called me on Sunday, a unit in the South, they wanted a 100 packages of beef jerky. That's $1,000 right there. Every request is so big. Well, how are you and funding all this? prayer <laughs> and uh, i gotta try that actually i have tried that <laughs> we know we know so yeah it's just but are like, people but are people supporting are people jumping on board to be part of this thing so i would say yes baruch hashem we've raised around four hundred thousand dollars <laughs> and but baruch hashem thank god that's great i was actually gonna it's actually right before the war started my wife wanted us to switch up our car for an electric car and I didn't because I was thinking, how many mitzvahs can I do in an electric car? It's limited to a certain number of kilometers. I actually put about 50,000 kilometers on our car driving to different bases in the last few months. Amazing. And it's just been an unreal experience seeing the land, well, meeting the people. Well, let's see. Let's actually see a little video of you uh, giving some of that beef jerky out to soldiers. Let's take a look. I'm here with world-renowned Dr. Bradley Strauss from Toronto. And it's been an honor to spend the afternoon with him. 
distributing beef jerky. It's our honor to have this list to bring meat, basar, pure meat, to give it to the soldiers. This is something important to you. Thank you very much. Very important Thank you. All right, so so right there, there's some protein snacks. It's going to give a go a long way. And we're not just talking about yummies. See, that's the difference. The beef jerky thing is not just a yummy. This is actually going to make them stronger soldiers uh, in in the immediate, like like short term, right. and it gives them a lot of strength. I'm talking. I just I just got my release papers from two months of reserve duty. I know what it's like to uh, to, to 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 have good food at your disposal. Uh, so that's that's awesome. Um, but wait, I, I want to show another film here. I want to show a film of your volunteers getting together to make it happen. Okay. <laughs> Our makers and our messengers we can't do one without the other. So, so if you eat a lot of beef jerky, do you become as tall as that guy that was standing there? That that was the tallest that's, Jew. That's a I've dad seen. actually that has some kids that have. He hasn't seen his son in three months. Wow! And that's actually wow. Susie Fishbait. You heard about the projects? I say, you know what? I'm supposed to meet up with them. They package a hundred bags every week to send to their boys. I said, let's meet at your apartment. And she got to meet them, met us. And it's just, it's so amazing to be Mechazek. And one of the, that's been strengthened, right? You're doing it. <laughs> and one of the things that, saying like this, the Babacha Rebbe says that at the end of times, when you're doing good, you feel great. If you're not doing anything, you feel miserable. And that's one symbol that we're in. Also, you could go all out. We believe in Eretz Yisrael being 100% the most beautiful place, the most wonderful place, place for all nations, full of love, a light to the people. Here we have, like you said, it's tasty, it's practical, it's portable. You got beautiful it's a great notes gift. On the back. Oh, there's notes on the back. I love it. There's notes on the back. Oh, look at that. And we look got, at got people writing notes. Inside. And if you want to see something really cool, I sent you a screenshot from, we had Yeshiva Mivaser at Sion, 250 guys. They came to Yeshiva Reishi, and they wrote beautiful notes. And then two, three days later, the Rosh Yeshiva, if you want, you could, I sent you an image of that. I don't know if you could find it quickly there. And the Rosh Yeshiva sent back a response. He sent me that one of the parents, his son was in Gaza continually, and he got the beef jerky right before Shabbat. He got the beautiful note from the Yeshiva guy. And it's just the full connection of people writing, people learning, People giving. And of course, the big thing here is the full immersion. Like we say, let me see if you could translate this. With all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your worldly possessions. And, and that's what a soldier is doing. And that's, that's right. really what, like for this, like we've had people that they say, well, I'll give to a good dude. I'll give to an army unit. And that's our, some of our typical requests. That's 500 soldiers, 550 soldiers. Chaim, how, how does one connect with... Uh, with Beef Up Our Boys. How, do, how does one connect with that? So you can go on our website, beefupourboys.com. Or I give you a Beef Up Our Boys.com. Can I try? Beef Up Our Boys. Beef Up Our Boys.com. Is that right? That's Beef it. Up Our Boys. There it is. Okay, so it's sliding on the bottom there. Very simple, very awesome. Chaim, you are an awesome, an awesome Ole in this land. You've brought so much uh, success and joy to so many people. Uh, and it is an honor that I had the uh, merit to be there when you when you made Aliyah. And we have a slogan for people that make Aliyah, which is keep making Aliyah. 
and that's exactly what you're doing. And I want to give you a lot of bracha to continue to succeed. And thank you very much for having giving me the honor of speaking with you about beefuparboys.com. And I urge thank everybody, you. of course, to beef up the boys. Just that simple. Thank you. Thank you. Mm, that was good. I want some beef jerky. Yeah, that's that's good, healthy sustenance right up in there. That's right. Speaking of healthy sustenance, our good friends at prohibitionpickle.co.il. Yes. Uh, our our uh, uh, my mates at yes, the uh, our uh, sweet sweet friends at at the Yishai Fleischer Works. Okay, Yochevet uh, uh, Seidman and Moshe Herman uh, and uh, and David got together and and got us prohibition they, pickle. They sponsored our Shabbos. That's right, because we need a little healing. Because time. we had this like I don't know if you guys know about this like flu COVID thing. <laughs> I don't know what we had. I didn't like officially test myself. But I was down for the count. That's right. I can't remember the last time I was like in bed for like four days in a row. That's right. That never happens. I was really sick. So and we we got this beautiful Shabbos meal delivered to us. It was it really warmed my heart and it made life so much easier for us and it was delicious and and we really appreciated it so much. Prohibitionpickle.co.il. Malka, look at my watch. I'm still yes. wearing my, 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 my regular day watch has not come back yet, so I'm still wearing my Tissot. That's from RetroWatchGuy.com. Check out RetroWatchGuy.com. Really great stuff. And uh, and uh, now they're from Israel. Okay, they're in Israel, so God bless them. Uh, and let's thank our good friends at JewishPress.com for putting up uh, my show uh, every single week. That's it's really awesome. And thank you very much to the Land of Israel Network, which hosts uh, uh, the show and gets it out to the world as well. And check out our other great shows there. Uh, and thank you to Ari and Jeremy for doing such a great job in the farm. That's right. They're doing a great job. I want to I wanna give a shout out to their YouTube page. And I want to give a shout out to your YouTube page, Ishai. Yes, my YouTube page is flying. And, and yeah, you, you you're are... really getting out there in your shorts. That's right. Not in your actual like summertime shorts. That's right. But in your YouTube shorts. And I do recommend that you put on some shorts and and subscribe to my channel, YouTube channel. We're having a lot of right. Fun there's over like there. a huge growth that's happening there. That's right. So, Malka, I'm actually running for city council locally here in Judea. Not as like a first place, but I'm on the list. Right on the council. On the council. Yeah. Ben Bresky has done a very interesting. Our intrepid reporter Ben Bresky has done a very interesting retrospective. Yes. On the story of Israel's first elections. Huh. And the blessings of Sheikh Yano that some people made, wow. and so so Ben Bresky. That'll be interesting. One of his great skills is that he can really bring the past back to life. Ben Bresky on Israel's first elections. This is a moment in Jewish history. Israeli municipal elections are coming up, and this is an opportunity to explore elections of the past. Every five years, cities and municipalities vote for mayor and city council throughout Israel. This year, the election has been postponed twice due to Operation Iron Swords. This was done in the past for the 1973 Knesset elections due to the Yom Kippur War. Israel's first ever elections were also postponed in 1948 due to war. Israel's Declaration of Independence called for a set date for the first elections, but the surrounding Arab countries invaded the newly established nation. Israel's first elections were finally held in 1949. Here is a description of Israel's first elections from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. In brilliant sunshine and in a quiet holiday atmosphere, Jews and Arabs throughout Israel cast their votes today for the first national elections since the establishment of the Jewish state. 
Long queues of voters lined up from the early morning hours before the thousands of polling stations throughout the country. Premier David Ben-Gurion and his wife were among the early voters at a station in northern Tel Aviv. In Arab-populated areas, separate lines were formed in front of the polling stations by Arab women. This was the first time in the life of the Arab women that they had been permitted to cast their ballots. For many Arab men, it was also the first time that they were participating in elections. Orthodox voters recited Shechechianu when they cast their ballots in the first election of the Jewish state. In Jaffa, Arab propagandists appealed to Arabs to cast their ballots for the sternest ticket, which lists the Arab leader Abu Ghosh as a candidate for the Israeli National Assembly. A large group of Druze were among the voters in villages near Haifa. A more personal description of the first elections can be found in the book The Diary of a Mukhtar of Jerusalem, the writings of Rabbi Moshe Yakutiel Alpert. Born in Israel, Rabbi Alpert taught at the prestigious Eitz Chaim Yeshiva in Jerusalem. In 1949, he wrote the following. At 5.35 a.m., my wife and I got up early, as did my brother, my brother-in-law, and my son Dove. After we drank a quick cup of coffee, we dressed in our Shabbat clothes in honor of this great and holy day, for which we recite, This is the day proclaimed by God, let us rejoice and be happy. After 2,000 years of exile, actually since the six days of creation, we have never had an opportunity as today, that we can go and vote in a Jewish state. Blessed be he that he has enabled us to live and see this day. My son Dove left the house at 5.45 and went off because he's a big supporter of the Heirut party and didn't return until night. My wife and I and my brother and brother-in-law went to the voting station of District 10, holding our State of Israel-issued identity cards in our hands. We walked the short distance from our house to the poll with great joy. We are currently living downstairs from the Goldschmidt family since our house in Beit Yisrael had been hit by a rocket and was being repaired. That is why we were assigned to this station. All the way to the polling station, I felt like on Simchat Torah when we danced with the Torah, but instead of a scroll, I held my Israeli ID card in my hand. You can't imagine the happiness and joy I felt. At 5.50 a.m., we came to the building and were the first ones there. The janitor brought the ballot box, and the chairman called me and my brother over to honor the elderly and asked us to witness the fact that the box was indeed empty and observe its ceiling. The chairman said since I was the oldest person there, I would have the privilege of being the first voter. Quivering with emotion of awe and sanctity, I gave the chairman my identity card. He gave me an envelope, and I went into the closed-off area where all the party letters were placed. With a shaking hand and a feeling of holiness, I chose a note marked BET, the United Religious Party's letter, and placed it carefully in the envelope and returned to the polling station. And then, at the moment of greatest exhilaration, a moment that neither my father nor my grandfather nor any of my ancestors experienced, I recited the Shechechianu blessing and carefully placed the envelope in the ballot box. Blessed am I, and blessed is my portion. I shook the chairman's hand heartily and the other committee members' hands as well and went off to pray. A great holiday indeed. The following is from British Movie Tone and British Pathé. 
The printing of posters was an important part of Israel's first election campaign. 1,200 candidates from 21 parties to be chosen for 120 seats by an electorate of under half a million. The campaign is reported as being a pretty noisy affair, but that was quite natural on such an exciting occasion. All shades of opinion, from the United Religious Front to the Communist Party, had to be expounded by loudspeaker and by poster. Anyone, Jew, Christian or Muslim, could vote. Proportional representation is the system. Israel's first general election became a matter of some importance. For the voters, many of whom are refugees from Europe, it is the first free election they have ever experienced. David Ben-Gurion, head of the Mapai Party, became Israel's first prime minister. Voter turnout was over 86%. Many colorful political parties and elected officials ran in the first election. The party described by Rabbi Alpert in his memoirs as Bet was the United Religious Front. It became the third largest following Ben-Gurion's Mapai and the similar Mapam, which later joined forces to become the Labor Party. The United Religious Front was headed by Rabbi Yehuda Lieb Fishman, who later became Yehuda Lieb Maimon. He was one of the founders of the Mizrahi movement in 1902 and was arrested several times for Zionist activity by the Russian authorities. In 1946, he was imprisoned by the British in Latrun. The British detained him on Shabbat, and he refused to ride in a vehicle and offered instead to walk to the nearby police station. The British refused his offer and forced him into the car. Maimon helped draft Israel's Declaration of Independence and was one of its signers. He attempted to get his friend David Ben-Gurion to add the words, Trust in the God of Israel to the Declaration, but the committee opted for a compromise with the secular members, and it says today, Trust in the Rock of Israel, which could be interpreted in both a religious and secular sense. Other notable parties were Menachem Begin's Herut Party, the fourth largest, and the Israeli Communist Party, which won one seat in the Knesset plenum. Another party was the Yemenite Association, headed by Zakharia Glaska. The party's roots went back to the 1920s as the Association of Yemenis in Israel, which had delegates in the World Zionist Congress and the Provisional State Council when the British still controlled the land of Israel. The Democratic List of Nazareth was headed by Saif el-Din el-Zuabi, who was a member of the Knesset until 1979. Before the establishment of the state, he worked in the Haganah's news service. The party's other leader was Amin Salim Jarjora, who was born in Nazareth to a Christian Arab family and attended law school in Jerusalem. He served in the Ottoman army during World War I and later became mayor of Nazareth. The WIZO, the Women's International Zionist Organization, was founded in 1920 in England and had delegates in the Zionist movement. Before Israel's independence, Rachel Lubarsky, later Rachel Cohen Kagan, represented WIZO in the Provisional State Council. She was later elected in the first Knesset. She was a signer of the Declaration of Independence and wrote about the historic moment as follows. The voice that read the text was David Ben-Gurion's familiar voice. The words were familiar, the surrounding faces also familiar, and yet it was impossible to perceive that all of this was happening in reality. From that day, I began to understand Chagall. His floating figures began to speak to my heart. It was clear to me why a bride and groom float in Chagall's pictures in the air, above rooftops, because I myself experienced a similar experience.
In moments when a person feels that a dream becomes reality and joy fills his heart, they are able to soar above the rooftops. To this day, it is difficult for me to put into words my feelings on that day. My lips and perhaps human language in general are too poor. I think that only music and art can give a proper expression. The fighters list was headed by Nathan Friedman, later Natan Yellen Moore, former head of the Lachi, the Fighters for the Freedom of Israel, an underground militant group dedicated to pushing the British out of Israel. He took over the Lachi after its founder, Avraham Stern, was killed by British police and led the group with Professor Israel Eldad and Yitzhak Shamir. Yellen Moore was a wanted man by the British and once escaped from the detention camp in Latrun. His time in Knesset was short-lived. Professor Eldad turned to writing and teaching. Yitzhak Shamir joined the Mossad Secret Service and in the 1980s became Prime Minister, sharing the role with Shimon Peres when their election came out a tie. But that is a story for another time. This has been a moment in Jewish history. Thank you to Yishai Fleischer. Thank you to all the listeners. And Shalom. Zionist history check. That's right. Okay. Oof, God bless us to keep going forward from those days and, and keep, uh, you know, the, the start, the start, the match was lit and the nation, the nation is off. Uh, Malka, I want to, I want to thank uh, the good po- folks at Hebron, the Jewish community of, which I have the great honor and privilege of serving and praying at the tomb of the patriarchs and matrix. I got to tell you, Malka, one of the greatest things about my job slash life mm-hmm. yeah. is that I get to pray at the tomb of the patriarchs yeah, and matrix. That's pretty big. Today, for example, was the day that I didn't go into the tomb because I was just busy but even when I drive out of Hebron, I stop. You give a little wave of wits. And I even stop and I try to pray a little that's bit. And nice. I, what a schut. What you, a schut. Uh, that's right. Um, and our Torah is so holy. And, you know, on other shows of this nature where you hear about politics, you might not hear about, about the Torah. So first thing I want to thank Hebron, the Jewish community of, and recommend that you check out hebronfund.org, which is doing a great job at getting the story of Hebron out to the world and getting folks to be part of it from, from all over the world. So hebronfund.org. Uh, and the other thing is that I was in Hebron today, and in my little studio office, I got to speak with the one and only Rev. Mike Foyer. Nice. About this Torah portion, and specifically about one verse. Ooh. That verse that is really the purpose of life. What? That's right, the purpose of life. Well, let's find out what that is real fast. Here is Rav Mike and myself talking about the very purpose of life in Israel. I'm joined today by none other than Rav Mike. Rav Mike Foyer. Rav Mike, welcome to the show. Misha, it's good to see you. It's good to have you back. People, people, you're back by popular demand, uh, yeah. literally. I wanted to talk with you today about one of the most powerful verses in the Torah, which is going to be in this week's Torah portion. That verse is found in the book of Exodus, chapter 24, uh, and it is uh, verse verse 8. No, verse 9. No, verse 8. Sorry, here it is, verse 8. And it is, goes like this. Vasu li mikdash v'shachanti betocham. They shall make for me a tabernacle or a holy place or a temple. Or really, really a holy place, right? Would you translate like that? Vasuli Mikdash. They'll make for yeah, me a, sanctu- a sanctuary in my sanctuary. Vishachanti betocham, and I shall dwell 
amongst them. This word shachanti is from the word shachen, which means neighbor, or shechina, which means presence. And I will dwell amongst them or inside of them. Within so this, them, yes. Within them, right. So this verse has come to be so meaningful. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll describe some of the different ways that it's understood. But it is within a Torah portion, which is all about how to construct a tabernacle. This, this is the type of Torah portion. We have not seen this type yet in this cycle. Uh, of Torah reading, suddenly this is the blueprint Torah portions, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and and here we have this this verse, which is in, in some sense all encompassing. This is what it's all about. I'm going to give you the blueprint. But what's the point of this? Just a few short words. Make for me a sanctuary, a holy place, and I shall dwell within you. Uh, some people say, well, this means you got to work out and eat healthy because you create a sanctuary and then the spirit dwells within you. And other people say, well, this means that um, you know, God is going to be in your city, in your city, Jerusalem, and then amongst your people. And then maybe there's a bigger uh, 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 kind of a bigger uh, perspective, which is that the whole idea of the Torah is that we create a vessel for God in this world so that godliness resides in this world and touches the whole world, lights up the world, <clears throat> and the world comes to realization that there's a God and that he's amongst us. And that, and that we actually provide him with a way of not being <clears throat> grossed out by us and distant from us, but to be within us, uh, all around us, and this world will be, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? It, not infiltrated, but infused, infused, infused with godliness. <clears throat> so I wanted to throw it out to you today. Vasuli Migdash Veshachanti Betucham. How do you see that verse? Um, and after that introduction, I'm not so sure what I can add. There's, there's a few things that come up for me. One, just want to reiterate one of the things that you said, which is that um, this is a call to build vessels. Hmm. Right? I think that, that people are often confused by the Torah's assumption that God wants partners in creation. It's not that God can't dwell in the world without us. That's, you know, they, it was right? God can do anything. That's not the point. What God wants is active partners in moving creation toward its fruition. And probably the most profound expression of the relationship between creation and creator is this idea of mikdash, right? That, that there's some way in which the world, physical world that we know, be it in the personal, in the collective, or in the, in the you know, sort of whole creation as a whole, can actually be a vessel for the divine presence. But it has to be built. Right, and if there's no other message that one derives from the intense detail of the parsha that follows this sort of general introduction, is that it's not going to be built in a simple step. Right, that, that in, in a certain sense, every action that we do, every thought that we have, every emotion that we feel, is meant to be a brick in creating in our own lives a step of mikdash, and then ultimately in our societies it functions the same way. Um, because otherwise, the challenge is that where does all that energy go? Right, meaning, meaning, I, I I see our society suffering from this today. Is that you can you can pour enormous amount of energy into progress, um, into you know um, achievements, but without a central organizing principle, you will always be hobbled in your ability to achieve. I know this as a as a counselor and life coach. If people don't have clear vision, then even their daily goals will lack direction. So I would say that, that what this is is that the center point tells us this is the mission. Connect heaven and earth, and we can talk about the different scales that you named. Uh, this, I think, the simple reading here is as a national 
effort, but I think that the um, the notion that it applies personally and to creation as a whole are true as well. But but without this central connecting vision, the risk is that our tremendous efforts to build the world will basically fall apart. How many teenagers do you think you could go to and say, tell me, tell me what the purpose of life is? And they'll say to you, well, the, the purpose of life, that's that's kind of simple, which is to create for God a, a domain in this lower world, to create for him a space. Just just that simple concept that that our job is to create a place for God's presence. Now, I don't not know me. if you want to touch on this or not, but like I'm gonna I'm gonna go big here. Why would God want that? Why would he want us to work on creating a space for him? Isn't the whole world his creation and therefore his space? Well, well God is the space of the world. The world is not the space of God. And that's how our sages said it, which is have many implications that were perhaps left unstated right now. But the simple one is that that God created the world out of a desire for relationship. You know, I, I, that we have to go all the way back to the first couple of chapters of Genesis and just recall two simple statements. Right? One is that humanity is created in the image of God. Right? That's a beautiful, powerful, and embracing principle. The other one, you know, when I say that's the first statement about human nature, the first statement about the human condition is it's not good for humanity to be alone. Right? So put the two together logically. If humanity is created in the image of God, and it's not good for humanity to be alone, then it's not good for God to be alone. Right? But here's the problem, so to speak, that the creator faces, is that God is able to do anything without anyone else. What God wants is a relationship, and that requires, an, as, to some degree, some sort of peer or equal, or at least a partner. And that's why God is the place of the world, but the world is not the place of God. God stands outside the world and waits for us to invite God in. Not that God can't be here. But the, it's the invitation that matters. It's the effort to build the vessel that matters, not the vessel itself per se, right? But it ha there has to be something that's the product because it can't just be an intention. And I'm telling you from my experience as a coach and a counselor, without concrete vision, then your 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 goals and your daily tasks will will lack the power to really change you or the world around you. Yeah, definitely. I I, I so wish that we could kind of distill what you just said and and place it as like an index card in front of every teenager in the world and be like, okay, you know, our job is to have a relationship with God and to give him uh, a, a safe space, if you will, uh, in this in this lower world. And, and there's nothing more beautiful than revealing God in this corporeal uh, universe that although he created it, 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 it hides him. And that our job is to reveal him and channel him in this world. I want to go out on a limb like, for a second. Go ahead. What's that? You ready? I want to go out on a limb for a second. All right, go. People um, are speaking a lot today about the lack of vision from our leadership. And perhaps you might even say the lack of leadership altogether that, that Am Yisrael is, is facing. I would say this is because we've abandoned the vision of the temple as, as a society. Mm. That has always been our driving. If you would stop the Jew on the street in 18th century Poland... Or, or, you know, 15th century North Africa, or, you know, keep going, you know, 10th century Babylon or what have you, and ask, where is this all headed? They would have said, well, back to Jerusalem to build the temple. And it's one of the most important questions in understanding Jewish history to understand how it is that when we actually began to make that process real in the world, 
establish a state and then ultimately conquer Jerusalem again, etc. How it is that that vision not only um, sort of fell away, but in certain sense within large portions of our leadership core became anathema, right? You're, you're crazy messiness if you want to build the temple today. You're not a, a person who is connected to the essential vision of Judaism historically and the Torah in its essence. Oh, and you're dangerous. Well, that's the crazy part, right? The crazy right. message. You're right. going to set the Middle East on fire. Right. Well, there's a difference between crazy as and as dangerous. You know, fire going on out there anyway. <laughs> that's right. Um, um, and yet, the, the those forces that see the building of a third temple as dangerous and crazy, similar forces or or related forces are fond or were fond of calling Israel itself the third temple or the third commonwealth. Sure. Now, on the one hand, I think that there's a great lack in using the term third commonwealth because I, I was with a Japanese reporter today and I said to him, this is not our first rodeo here. This is our third commonwealth. And I laid it out to him and I said to him, you, sir, are Tanaka. You are from uh, an ancient peoples as well. You know what that's like. And I started ta talking to him about the ancient stones that they have in Japan, these tsunami stones that warned them, whatever. And I just and he got into it. And I was like, I was like, we're an ancient peoples on this land. So I do love, and I think that it's I think it's very under uh, underused, underutilized, not underutilized. The language of the third Commonwealth. I, I mean, I mean. I started thinking that we should have this on our flag, like the third commonwealth, Israel, the third commonwealth. This is like, this should be like, this should be like, you know, something that we use all the time, the third commonwealth. And, and just use that language all the time because that will undermine the, you know, occupation style narrative where we're Johnny yeah, come lately. Lie. Uh, but, but what I wanted to ask you maybe on a historical level as well is, there, there was such a concept that this is the, the state of Israel is the third temple. Some people find that offensive. They find that to mean that the state, the secular state, will replace the concept of the temple. And another way of saying it is like, no, this is the era of the third temple. The state of Israel is its beginnings, as we say in the prayers, Rashid's Michaeloteinu, the beginnings of our redemption. So how do you see that the era of the third temple? So, I mean, it makes perfect sense that the founders of the state called it the third commonwealth and even, and even in a sense, called the state itself the third temple because it was the secular expression of their messianic impulse. You can't remove the messianic vision from the roots of Zionism, despite the fact that many, if not most, of the driving personalities had rejected traditional Judaism and, and, and were quite um, often antagonistic even toward it. Nonetheless, the, the momentum of 2,000 years is what they were building on. Furthermore, like I said, you, you can't have a, a redemptive vision which is powerful enough to trigger a national rebirth after two millennia that doesn't have an end point. And one of the challenges that secular Zionism, the world that really thought of the state as the third temple, it, one of the challenges it has faced for quite some time is that once the state came into being, its purpose was achieved. Which is why there's been this struggle to maintain a sense of collective effort and idealism. And, you know, granted, you know, for the first, say, uh, 30 years, 
things were hard enough that just survival was right. You know, the state was not an assured thing, so there was right. They're still building once, it. Like I, I tell you, you could say it really began '67, but once the '80s rolled around, once the '80s rolled around, and it became very clear that we weren't really, although present events might contradict this, we weren't really in an existential struggle any longer. As Menachem Begin called the Lebanon, the first Lebanon war, Israel's first war of choice, right? Um, so once that happened, it opened up a space of saying, well, wait a minute, if I'm not really driving toward anything, then what, what am I sacrificing for? Like, why? Life is hard. And, and life in Israel in particular demands much of people. Um, and, and uh, you know, and so that's, that's one answer why, you know, why they would, they would call it that. Uh, the the other piece is you know that Rav Cook was fond of speaking about, um, and he was of that generation of of the secular Zionists. He wasn't a secular Zionist, really, but who would call the state or the pre-state the efforts toward building the Third Republic and even the Third Temple. He was fond of speaking. He was fond of speaking of the effort of of you know building the vessel and then sanctifying the vessel. And this is something you still hear the students of the students speak about today, right? Is that when right, make me a sanctuary and I will dwell amongst you. There's a, well, there's a physical building there, right? be it a state or a temple, but then there's the true sanctification that draws God into the world. And it could be that we're in a process now and we really have the strongest state in Jewish history. I think that 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 we've surpassed the power that Herod wielded during the Roman era and, and the Hasmoneans wielded during the late Greek era, um, you know, maybe David and Solomon, Solomon but may, maybe not. I mean, we, we can, we, if we would choose to do so, we, we wield quite a bit of power. Um, and the question is, what are we going to do with it? And this is the problem that plagues our society. What are we going to do with it? And if your answer to that is we're going to live a normal life and we just want to be like everybody else, I got news for you. The footsteps of Jewish history are so loud <laughs> coming after you with that ad- attitude that you should uh, you should just. Well, sort of it, like, it goes back to what you said before, which is which is a question of of how do you visualize yourself? How do you vi- what's what's your what's your internal chronometer telling you? What are what are you what are you what are you doing? Like wh- what's your goal? And if you have this goal of being a channel, and you know you know I I have um, two slogans for Israel. Which I think, which I think, they're they're very easy. They're like slogans that I think would be touristic slogans. One is, "Land of miracles," right? Israel, land of miracles, right? I think people would be drawn to that. It's land of miracles. Another way of saying that is land of revelation, but I think that's a little scarier. I like land of miracles. Yeah, but it's scary. the same thing. Yeah. Scary. I, I yeah, love yeah, land no, of miracles. Thing, but, but I meant to say, that I only meant to say the second one in order to get your sense that miracles means revelation, means God's revelation, land of that's miracles. Really sure. And another another slogan for Israel is Israel, land of blessings. It's so simple. And once you once you embody that, again, Vasudi Mikdash Veshachanti Betocham, embody that. Right? Like embody that Israel is a land of blessings. And like our job is to channel blessings into this world. It becomes a great raison d'etre. It becomes like a reason to live and do it to be like a channel for God's presence in this world. And I, I just, I know about my own life. It, 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 it fills you. It fills you. It literally fills it, you as in, like it, it, it becomes inside of you and it starts to, to glow out of your face like it did with Moses. 
I mean, listen, I, I happen to agree with you, but you're obviously aware of the challenge that it poses because it rests on the assumption that God not only exists, but desires a relationship. Mm-hmm. Someone with, which, which I hold very dear and is a central facet of my, 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 my daily practice. Forget my, um, you know, my thought processes, but it's a big challenge. It's a big challenge freighted with a lot of pain, difficulty and, and poor education and judgment. I mean, you know, like uh, I'm Israel, just I'm Israel. Forget the nations of the world for a minute. Just on Israel, we haven't passed through the last couple hundred years in an easy fashion. And 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 the hands of those of us who are striving to live Torah are not clean in that difficulty. You know, like one of the things, another thing that Ralph Cook said, which has always resonated with me, is that you know, no one ever became a heretic because of what they read in a book. People leave Torah and they abandon God because they look at religious people who claim to represent God in the world and they see that we're not actually doing so. Okay, so let me rip off the riff off that. And the riff is exactly the opposite, which is you said right now that some people are turned off and they say this ain't it because they meet the bad guy at the synagogue, or they meet the bad rabbi or they had the bad experience, it's over. But you know, there is a group that is always talking about the third temple, and that is the jihad, the enemies of Israel. They are completely sure. They are completely sure that we're on this quest to build the third temple. And in fact, one of the uh, jihad documents, a Hamas document that was released, oh no, it was a spokesman, a Hamas spokesman who said, well, you know, one of the reasons we started this war is because they brought in these five red heifers that are in oh, yeah? right now. Oh, yeah. It was oh, it, World Net Daily broke it, and they said, you know, one of the complaints that Hamas had was like, we got to start this war because they're flying in these red heifers from Texas. I know the people I've interviewed on the, on my show, the people that brought the, the red heifers, and there are literally five red heifers in Shiloh. They, they actually fly them in? They, 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 it was, it's, it's a, it's a half a million dollar story. It's a long and unbelievable story. They flew these guys in. They flew in these red heifers from Texas. It's a, it's a story. Huh? First class. Uh, Yeah. It's, (laughs) I I want to make a good joke. I I just, I couldn't figure it out. Let's just not go there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they really know how to move. Okay. Anyway. So they flew over. Instead of being a good joke, you made a bad joke. No, that was a bad joke, bad pun. But the point is, is that, and not a joke, for the jihad, their whole thing is that this war is about Jerusalem. This war, they literally name it the Al-Aqsa flood. They're trying to flood out the Zionists and the would-be third Templars from from breaching the walls of Jerusalem, their Jerusalem, their Al-Quds. And they want to, they, and, 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 and another example is one of the things that Hamas demanded in the recent negotiations with Israel is that all visitation to the Temple Mount would stop. That was literally one of their demands. And sadly, something that many in our government would say, hey, what do I care? So stop that. That's an easy answer. Sure, sure. But the point is, is that they are totally convinced that this whole war is about Jerusalem and that, and that the third temple, the Jewish third temple is on the way and that they have to do everything to stop it. And and the, you know they are much more concerned about this. And you know you're and you're right. You know they're like they're like you're trying to build the third temple. And a lot of times the Israeli government's like no 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 no, 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 no. nobody here is trying to work on a third temple. 
<laughs> you know, well, I mean, and then there's and then there's other Jews who are like, no, no, we are we are working on a third temple. But 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 I just so my question to you is, let's flip let's flip it to from the perspective of 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 the enemies or by the way lovers of Israel as well who are like you know hey I think you guys are trying to build a third temple like what's our relationship with the Gentiles with the world? Everybody's talking about the world all the time. There's a world out there that sees Israel as 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 building a third temple. What's 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 going on from their perspective? Well, I I think you know like I said before that the essence of what it is to be a, a Jew, and certainly as a people, is that we have a task. It's a it's a human capacity, but it's a Jewish responsibility. Let's say to connect heaven and earth. You know, that that's like that's, that's what from, we do from, Jake, from Jacob's dream on, right? Yeah, I mean that's one of the reasons that the, that Jacob's ladder is, in many ways, the archetypical symbol. By the way, by the oh. way, just just parenthetically, notice, notice what I noticed since I lived in Beitel, where that story happened, is that that is one of the lesser used uh, uh, icons of of Jewish iconography. I happen to know this is a pet peeve of yours. Yes, no, it's true. I think it's one of the lesser used because it's it's one of the least understood, and it also relates to the fact that that um, uh, for better or worse, I, I want to say most Jews, they they just want to live a normal life. They want to live a normal life. Like, what do I connect heaven and earth? Yeah, in your personal behavior, right? What does it mean to be to be uh, am segula? Right? We saw a couple of parshiot ago that God called us a treasured people, a nation of of ministers and a holy people. This is a very big demand. Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we get to go to the head of the line in the grocery store or and that our interest rates are lower and that the whole world should just, you know. No, what it means is that we have a lot of work to do. Right. And it never ceases. Mm -hmm. It never ceases that the demand of focused intentionality and constructive energy in every action is there. Right, 613 mitzvot and the entire corpus of law that emerges from it means that a Jew never wastes a moment if they're on their game. Obviously, we're human as well. But nonetheless, that's the expectation on your personal level. Communally speaking, also so, right? Whether it's the, whether it's the obligations for education and, and, and creating sort of mikdash ma'at, what we call in the synagogue and other spaces of learning and sanctuary, as a national people, the world are looking to us and saying, like, we want heaven and earth to connect. There is something lacking. And either they're looking and saying they want to usurp our position, right, which is what the, the jihadists are want to do. They claim that their prophet came along and is in Judaism 3.0 and, and, that, and that they've got it. So therefore they want to – and this is a consistent pattern of Islam and history of, of destroying and building over the sacred places of other peoples by a physical assertion of replacement that they have come along and taken all the sanctity into their path, right? So therefore, they're convinced that we're going to try to push back on that because they understand it's our essential nature. And oftentimes your enemies understand you better than you. And the other nations, I assume you're speaking about certain elements within the Christian world who are um, supportive of the, of the Zionist project because of their own sort of eschatology, their own vision of the end of days. Um, they know, especially those who do so without antagonism, but with this very new sort of like interest in seeing the Jews as a as a partner in the process, they know that we have a capacity that we have not yet exercised. 
They definitely do. They definitely have a a keen sense of that. It's a strange example, but I think it's an important one. If you look in some of the oldest, um, the oldest uh, works of law in European history, the Visigothic Code. There's a fun one, right? Visigothic, the Visigoths were the German tribe who ruled the Iberian Peninsula before the Muslims came in. No big fans of the Jews. The Visigothic Code encodes many of the classic. uh, anti-Semitic, as we would call it, principles of uh, that came a big part of European law. One of the things it says there is you're not allowed to hire a Jew to bless your fields. What does that tell you? Jews just to bless fields. People were hiring Jews to bless their fields. Right, that's right. And they, and, and they believed it worked. Uh, here, here in Hebron, uh, where I am right now at my studios in Hebron, um, there was a, uh, a rabbinit, a, 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 a wife of a rabbi, but but herself a holy person. Her name was Menucha Rachel. The Arabs wanted her to walk on their fields because she was a source of blessing. That's a fact. That is a fact here in Hebron. They would ask her to walk in the fields. Yeah. So it's exactly what you're talking about. That's awesome. That's awesome. Mike Foyer, Rabbi Mike, Rav Mike, uh, you are found also JewishHeroism.com. That's your big project right now. That's a very exciting project. Guess what? Uh, it's on Instagram as well, believe it or not. Woo-wee! Jewish Heroism yeah. Project. You can't stop Maybe that. Jewish, Jewish Heroism Project. And there's a lot to talk about there. And it's a very important project. And also uh, your spiritual counseling and other works are found at rovmike.com. I want to thank you very much and want to bless you that you continue to uh, uh, help channel godliness into this world. And so Amen. that we can uh, uh, talk about not just the third commonwealth, but also the third temple in realistic terms as uh, as at least with as much energy as our enemies are talking about it yeah please god right, god bless you Rev. mike thank you so much all right mike foyer wow he's the one and only right him and i have a special chemistry it's a real gift when i get a chance to speak with him and i really i i'm gonna listen to that audio again because it inspired some me deep stuff that's the that's the ultimate verse that maybe maybe it's the ultimate verse in the bible maybe it's certainly in the running certainly in the running um okay uh maka i also want to thank the good folks at, at high on the har right which is uh getting you up on the temple mount high on the har.com and uh the one and only mj and the good folks there will get you up in holiness and awesomeness my mom is up on the temple mount every week and she's a Temple Mount faithful. That's right. Say it. Own it. And do not be embarrassed about it. Say it. say it out there. I'm a Temple Mount faithful. Say it out loud. Say it wherever you are in your car right now. Say it. I'm a Temple Mount faithful. Uh, so that's really awesome. Uh, and I want to also, when I think about the Temple Mount, I also think about cycling through Jerusalem on koshercycletours.com and just seeing that beautiful, beautiful land. Now it's such a beautiful weather out also. Oh my gosh. Now would be so a green. Time for a kosher cycle tour. That's right. It would be. It's time for us to go on a kosher cycle tour. Okay, speaking of kosher, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there's a new book out there called Kosher Giving, and it's about a proper charity nice. and thinking about 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 uh, about philanthropy. And my good friend uh, um, Avi Zimmerman is the author, and I got to speak with him t- earlier wow. today. So let's hear be good. about kosher giving. My good friend Avi Zimmerman has written a new book, which is called The Donor's Guide to War and Peace. We're in war, trying to get to peace. It's called Kosher Giving. Great title. Four Steps to Creating Your Meaningful, Mindful, and Measurable Philanthropy Plan. 
which is great, you know, uh, because when we want to get stuff done in this world, we need philanthropy. It really matters. I've actually, I actually love fundraising and I think it's a beautiful art uh, and I love people who give. Uh, I think that people who give are really part of whatever they do in their work life, however they've made their money, but they actually want to keep using their money to get real things done in this world. I actually think it's a very beautiful thing and I'm always you know, surprised when people say, wow, you know, I hate fundraising. Why do you hate fundraising? Don't you want to get awesome stuff done in this world? Uh, so that's why I am very interested in my friend's new book. And Avi Zimmerman joins us today. Avi, welcome to the program. You are the founder and CEO of Sector for Strategy, which is an Israel-based advisory firm. And you've written this book about giving. All right, let's hear about it. Why'd you write this book? Well, first of all, Yishai, thank you for this opportunity. It is awesome to spend time with Yishai, even if it's through a screen. Anytime we get to spend together is always a pleasure. Um, for those who don't know, we go way back to Hebrew Youth Academy, which isn't even called Hebrew Youth Academy anymore, Joseph Kushner Hebrew Academy. So there's a history there. That's right. uh, why write the book? I asked myself the same question that everybody asked themselves at the very beginning of the war, which is, what is my role? What am I supposed to be doing? And honestly, Yishai, um, they didn't take me for Miluim. I've been out of reserves for eight years, and I needed to do the best I could to align my talents, the work that our advisory firm was doing with some sort of offering. And before the book, we actually started a website called koshergiving.com because we understood that there's a challenge when you have a few things that seem to really work together very nicely. But if they're not put together nicely or well, or the systems are out of sync, then we have a problem. Specifically, there was an unprecedented, and <clears throat> to a large degree, there remains an unprecedented set of needs, causes that need to be tended to here in Israel because of the war. That happened immediately. The next piece, though, was, like you just said, Yishai, people who want to do good. An unprecedented giving from the beginning of the war, and even until now, people who want to get involved, even if they're not here on the ground. And so they were giving unprecedented numbers. Also unprecedented volunteerism here in Israel. Some people coming from abroad, largely Israeli society, just everybody getting involved because it needed to happen. And so you'd think that when there are these needs, so, okay, that's a real big problem, but it's a really big solution when we have all the means coming in and all the people on the ground getting involved. But the reality is things don't come together that easily or that uh, they're not that well aligned. And in our role as an advisory firm, we basically rolled up our sleeves and we said, we're not just going to work with philanthropists, individuals. We're going to get this out to the masses. We set up a website. And after setting up that website, which did daily causes, daily worthy and trustworthy causes, and we never said, this is the most important. Heaven forbid. Everything is the most important. But what we said was, we've done some vetting and you now have information at your fingertips to make your own decision if this is something you want to give to. Because this provides you with the access and the familiarity and a certain degree of vetting to give you that kosher status for the given project. But we needed to do something else. And that's where this idea of the guidebook, the handbook, the how-to for the philanthropist, the donor, and I don't want to use the word philanthropist because that's scary. If I don't give a million dollars a year, I'm not a philanthropist. No, if you give $1 a year, but you give it like it's a million dollars, you give it because you're doing so meaningfully, mindfully, and measurably, then you're a philanthropist, but you have to definitely, do definitely. I, I think I think there's another a shorter word which also works, which is supporter. I think people are supporting things, and yep. they and and they're and and the real word is is a really fair word. It's a builder, you know, people that people that give uh, to causes, they want to be building it. They want to see it built, 
and it depends on the level. But at some point, you are not just supporting it; you're really a builder. Um, so I think that's that's awesome. Uh, give me give me a success story about how kosher giving has helped people um, give in a more kosher way. Well, it, it starts with um, everybody who even pre-read the book. This is a brand new book, and Baruch Hashem, thank God, hit number one bestseller in multiple categories at launch week, which is two weeks ago. And now we're going from uh, from the paperback, excuse me, not the paperback. We're going from the Kindle or the ebook. Now this week, I uh, just got the approval, and we now go to printing uh, in the United States. And so uh, we've gotten really amazing endorsements, wonderful accolades, et cetera, et cetera. But the people who read the book, we're speaking about how it is transformative for them. The way that they approach giving by having this um, methodology that really breaks down the different parts of why we give, what we give, how we give. And this is all based upon, uh, it's based upon Tanakh. It refers to the Rambam's approach, the, his hierarchy of giving. Um, so we have our contribution, the Jewish people's contribution to giving is baked into the book. But the people who read the book speak about how transformative it has been for them or how they've their eyes have been opened to, again, the fact that whatever their giving level, they could be giving more purposefully and more impactfully. That means basically in a short kind of version is we often give because people have access to us. Mm-hmm. Just right, I got a WhatsApp from my niece who's raising money for an organization that I happen to love have to read about the organization because my niece asked me. So I'm going to give because my niece asked me. But the truth is, that's actually not strategic giving. It, that has its own dynamic to it. We, we turn on a different part of our mind, a different part of our human experience when we give money, which is an investment. It's a philanthropic investment, but it's an investment as opposed to the way that we give when we give our capital investments. And there's something good about that because it's pulling on our heartstrings but perhaps we could do better if we use some, some of those best practices from the world of business and apply them to the giving that we do. Giving is not recreational. Giving needs to be intentional. We can do better. We can give better. And we need the tools to do that. Okay. Give me just one example. Throw out something to me about, about better giving using the a Tanakh thinking or, 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 or a business thinking. Uh, an example. So throughout the book, there's a ton of examples. They, I'll give you an example first from, from the world of the organizations themselves. I'll, I'll speak to this uh, young woman, Dr. Ilana Quartin, and she is a representative of a community not far from Hebron um, called Eliav. It's a young community, very Zionistic community. It's not in Yudav Shomron, it's not in Judea and Samaria, but it's not far from there. And there are some security risks, and the security risks were very, very real at the beginning of the war. Um, they're real for everybody. But basically, the IDF said, after October 7th, we've come to the conclusion that you guys need to defend yourselves. That's a really big piece of news, especially when everybody just went off to reserve duty. So Ilana and others in the community got together and said, okay, we need to beef up our uh, our first responders team, our Kitat Konanut. We also need to beef up some of the other security around the community. So how are we going to go about doing that? Well, we're going to speak to some people that we know and start raising some funds. Everybody's doing it. Let's do the same. They put up a campaign. And what happened? Just in the days that they started reaching out to people, others on the other side were saying, you know what? How do we know that you're for real? We just heard that Hamas is, you know, challenging. It is not challenging. Excuse me. Hamas is coming up with all kinds of fake accounts and fake things. I never heard of Eliav. I never heard of your fundraising platform. You're not even for real. Now, that's a real slap in the face to somebody who's trying to defend their community. 
Right. So but, 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 that, but, that, but that is a, one of the biggest problems in, 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 in donor, in, in philanthropy, which is like credibility, uh, provenance. And 100%. that's why that's why when your when your niece writes to you on WhatsApp, you're like, I know my niece, and I you know I know what she's doing. So how do you you know getting around the problem of 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 getting trust and knowing that these people are going to use that money in the proper way, uh, and 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 believing that they're who they say they are that that's a real issue. That's so why people also give a lot of times to like these big organizations because they're like, okay, it's Hadassah, you know, it's it's Hebrew, whatever it is, I know it. I know what I'm going to get, you know, where my money's going to go, but sometimes it doesn't go to that specific project that you want because you just don't know if you can trust. A hundred percent. So what Ilana needed to do was to build that trust person by person and give all of the reporting that was necessary and build that relationship over time. And they, those donors came to the point where they said, not, okay, I'll give you a little something, but here you go. And what else do you need? But she needed to steward that relationship. I just gave a presentation to some 80 nonprofits today, uh, yesterday, excuse me, specifically about this, helping them look at the other side of uh, better giving, because the better that they can understand what's really going through the mind of the philanthropist, the donor, supporter, companion or partner in whatever it is that's being built, um, the better that they can um, that they can learn to steward that relationship. OK, so there's a lot of pieces here. There's a lot of moving parts, but you're 100 percent correct. By the way, you know, there's some built-in challenges to the big organizations and to the small organizations. That's part of why things haven't gone so smoothly all the time. The big organization with a big um, team is very capable of handling with their fiduciary responsibilities the millions of dollars that are coming into the coffers. But they're not really good at getting those millions of dollars down to the, the grassroots individual volunteer who's trying right. to get diapers for, heaven forbid, someone you know who just lost their mother on October 7th or the baby formula. They just, they don't have the relationship. You go to the other side, you go to the people who are on the ground, they don't, they wouldn't know what to do with a million dollars if you gave it to them. And they wouldn't know how to report and they wouldn't know how to steward that relationship. So there are some built-in challenges that if everybody's doing this better, if the philanthropist on one side is giving better and they understand how to get into that, into that dynamic and they understand how to go about their decision-making and how to pivot or how to respond to, to crisis or extreme circumstances like we're experiencing still today. And on the other hand, the nonprofits know how to steward those relationships or steward those gifts effectively, then right. we're going to get to a better place. Right. A lot of times uh, I'll tell uh, potential donors, I'll say to them, your money turns to action with me. And I will begin to send you a video every week of the progress. And that's what I do. And I'm like, here's, here's, what, here's what we did. Here's what we're doing. You've seen it yourself. Also, of course, usually I say to them, come and see the place first. Come and see Hebron. Come and see what we're up to. Don't like take my word for it. Then start small with me. Give me something. See if I fulfilled my fiduciary duty to you. Yes. Okay. You can choose to keep going. But I'm always putting in these things to say to them, like, I, you know, I, I'm not saying trust me. I'm saying, like, take a step with me. Take a step, the a small step. In the pudding, and that's also a message for, the, for those who are in the nonprofit space. Um, your integrity is part of the currency that people are investing in. They're really giving to the people. You know, people give to people. Right. Especially when people are at a great distance. The only thing they have to go on is their is their credibility, their integrity. Uh, that's a big, uh, that's a that's a heavy weight to carry. You it know, is. when you invest with somebody um, at your, you know, investment, um, again, your capital investments, whatever they may be. You're actually not asking about their integrity so much. You just want to know that they're doing things by the book. 
They might not be the best person in the world. You're okay with that. They're giving you, you know, the bottom line and that's coming back to you and, and that's okay. But if the person that you're working with in a nonprofit is a person who you don't trust, you're not giving him anything. And, um, but again, there's, there's just a different way of approaching these different things. Um, the idea of kosher giving is, is really first and foremost what's going on now in Israel, but it, it, it's an evergreen process that we hope to get out there and really build a kosher giving community. And uh, not only of Jews. Um, the idea is, you know, meaningful, mindful, and measurable. Even if you don't keep a kosher diet, those are, things, those are principles that we can apply to lots of parts of life, including what we eat, but also including the way that we eat. Avi Zimmerman is the best-selling author of a brand-new book, Kosher Giving. It's brand-new, but it's already best-selling. Four Steps to Creating Your Meaningful, Mindful, Measurable Philanthropy Plan, but it's from Israel with Jewish and Israeli thinking and, and Torah thinking. Avi Zimmerman, you're doing great work as usual. God bless you, and be successful in getting this important message out to folks. Amen. Thank you so much, Ishaq. All right, folks, you are uh, learning a lot here. We're learning a lot about kosher. Kosher could also be in money. It could be in a lot of a lot of uh, parts of life. You need a little bit more koshering. And that's, of course, for Jews and non-Jews around the world. Avi's remember, thanks again. Thank you, Isha. Okay, and we're back, Malka. I hope you are kosher giving. Okay, I hope that you That reminds me of an article giving. I read recently that said that there was like a huge surge in Jewish philanthropy in the last four months, no largely doubt. spurred by this war. Um, but it was like, it was a, a whole feature article about like all the organizations that that raised funds and that they used them for all kinds of things and how they're distributing it. 1,000 yeah. million percent, really. So nice, the Jewish people. I have to say that, that in the beginning of the war, that was one of the most moving things to me was to see how Jews and our friends around the world um, galvanized and just did their best, you know what I mean? Did but like really did their best, you know. There were there were stories of people standing at the airports with their credit cards ready to pay for tickets of soldiers making their way home to to serve, and people who would buy up whole stores worth of you know deodorant or shampoo and put them in a in a bag and and ship them off on an airplane. People who who invested in all kinds of military equipment. People who really dedicated themselves to doing everything in their power, whatever their level of power was, um, to, to th you know, thrust their, their power behind the Jewish people in the land of Israel. And it meant so much. It still means a lot. Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. Thank you, Hashem, for every opportunity, every moment to be a part of it. And thank you to all the good people around the world that are, that are part of the story. And, and um, I don't know where you're at, but if you've lost any steam... I, which is not hard. Which is not hard and understandable. Let's get that steam. This this show, it's the steam machine, okay? <laughs> it's here to get, help you get that steam back and that energy back. And we've heard from so many good people about the great stories about the past and the present and heroism and, and giving and, and, and building the temple and so many so many good friends and so much good energy out there. I also want to thank uh, Yochavet Seibin, Moshe Herman, Tabitha, uh, uh, Dovid, Lewin, we're live. Who did I forget? Ben Ben Bresky, of course. Yes, of course. That's right, uh, of being part of this team. And speaking of of kosher giving, uh, check out uh, check out uh, buymeacoffee.com forward slash Yishai. And thank you to all the people that give through that. It makes a big difference. You give us a lot of strength. Let's give each other strength. Let's give each other strength. And I'm giving you the good eye, the eye of blessing, and the channel of blessing, channel of blessing, channel of blessing. Use that term, channel of blessing. Maka, you didn't uh, you didn't get a chance to be with me with Rav Mike Foyer. I said to him yeah. that I have 
I have really two slogans for Israel. Okay. Land of miracles. Yes. Israel, land of miracles. Isn't that something that would draw people in, Maka? It's just correct. Right, but no, but as a slogan. Yeah, Israel, I like land, it. land of miracles. We gotta make put on that on a shirt. Yeah. Let's put that on a shirt. Let's put that and we gotta get the stuff out there. Israel, land of miracles. Yep. And then I came up with another one, which is I think somebody helped me come up with this one, which is Israel, land of blessings. Land of blessings. Well, you have for years you've said on your shows uh, blessings from the land of blessings. That's right. That's exactly right. Israel, land of blessings. So that's exactly what this is about, and I want to thank all of you guys. Uh, please uh, connect with us on YouTube. We're really hopping. Uh, we would love for you to join us. Thank you very much for being with us, and we send you blessings <clears throat> from the land of blessings. As was said before, it's still very true. It's yes, true, truer, truer than ever. That's truer than ever. It's getting even truer by the minute because we're getting closer to the time of full redemption. In the third temple on that temple mount and a light into the world, it's just going to be a moment where people are like, actually, I do want God. Actually, I do want to be part of Israel. Actually, I do want to go to Jerusalem and touch God and, 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 and worship the God of Israel and to thank him for everything that he's created in this world. That's, that's, uh, I want to connect to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's his eternal name. That is his eternal name. Yes, hang in there, people. That's right. Don't break. Don't don't, break. don't let nobody break you. We're we're just getting started over here. Bezrat Hashem. And Maka, before I finish up, just one last thing. I want to remind everybody: today's show is dedicated uh, to the fifteenth yard site, to the passing day of Avraham Ben Meir Cohen, who did a lot of stuff in life. Uh, being a patriarch, uh, an officer in the U.S. Navy, uh, a successful person who gave charity her, right? and, and supported his family and many other people, Jews and non-Jews. God bless his soul. Amen. And, and may Hashem give uh, him a continued aliyah in, yes. in the heavens. And, and may, may all those who, who gave of themselves the best they could in life, may, may their neshamas have an aliyah and may, uh, may, we, may we see them again with the coming of Mashiach. And may God protect the soldiers yes. of the IDF May God protect Israel and all the lovers of Israel in yes, this time. And may God give us strength to be fighters. Thank you and God bless you wherever you are. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.